And I will read the whole chapter of Genesis chapter 3. Again, this is the inerrant, infallible, life-giving word of God. Now the spirit was more crafty than any other beast in the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave me to be with, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, well, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all bees of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he stretch out his hand... And take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim 
and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now let's turn in our uh, Trinity Psalter hymnals to the Heidelberg Catechism, page 7, uh, I'm sorry, 873. 873 of the Heidelberg. We are going to be reading through Lord's Day 3. I'll ask the question and then let's read it together responsively. Did God create man so wicked and perverse? No. God created man good and in his own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might truly know God, his creator, love him with all his heart, and live with God in eternal happiness for his praise and glory. Then where does man's corrupt nature come from? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise, this fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. All right. So as you know, the Heidelberg Catechism is divided into three sections. Sometimes the three sections are spoken of as guilt, grace, gratitude. Sometimes the three sections are spoken of as sin, salvation, and service. And so Lord's Day 3 is coming in that guilt, misery, sin section that's describing for us uh, the wickedness that we see around us, the sinfulness of mankind. Before we get to the good news of what Jesus Christ has done in the second section of the catechism, and then the third and then in the third section, the service that we owe Christ. The Catechism spends time thinking about why we even need the good news of Jesus Christ to begin with. I can remember when I first became a Christian, I was so excited, I went and told my atheist friend, you need to believe in Christ to be saved. And he said, saved? I didn't know I was in danger. Saved? From what? What are you talking about? Uh, Jesus didn't make much sense to him because he did not know his great peril. He did not know his great debt. He did not know uh, the predicament that he was in. And so the idea of salvation, being saved to someone who doesn't know what they need to be saved from, does not make sense. But when you read the Heidelberg Catechism, you know exactly what you are being saved from. Because the guilt and the misery sin section of the Catechism lays, I think, a thick understanding as to why we need Jesus Christ. And so when part two comes in the salvation section, you're ready to flee to Christ. As you work through the, the guilt and sin section of the catechism, you hear about Christ in the second section, and you are excited about what Christ has done because you feel the sin and the misery, and you feel the guilt that is yours. 
So as we approach Lord's Day 3, we will first consider um, our creation. Secondly, we'll consider our fall. And thirdly, we will consider our inability. So creation, fall, inability. First, our creation. In Lord's Day 3, the authors assume something throughout the, the three questions. They presuppose, you could say, a reality. And what is that reality? Well, they acknowledge from the, from the outset that humans are sinners. Humans are sinners, that there is corruption, that there is wickedness that is spread all around the world. That is acknowledged from the outset as the writers are asking the questions. And so in the question, uh, question six, why did, or did God create man so wicked and perverse? It's, it assumes that there is wickedness and that, that we are perverse. But it's asking, well, where did it come from? Did God create man so wicked and perverse? It, a man is wicked, but was it God who did it? Why is man so wicked and perverse? The catechism begins with a resounding no. Absolutely not. Do not think that God is the author of sin. We cannot do that. Psalm 5.4 You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. James 1.13 Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 1 John 1.5 God is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. So we cannot claim there's darkness in God. We cl cannot claim that God is somehow working evil, that he's the author of sin. These thoughts must be far away from us. So as we perceive the wickedness around us and we ask, well, did God do this? The catechism is right to give a resounding absolutely not. Sadly, though, we, we do hear this claim uh, again and again from people. I was once talking with a young girl about Christ and she didn't believe. And when I asked why she didn't believe, she said, well, there's so much evil. So much evil in the world. And, you know, why would God make a world like this? Why would God make a world where there's sin and death? And it was just unfathomable. She, she saw the world and she said, well, it doesn't make sense to deposit a God because the world's so, so perverse, so corrupt. But the Catechism helps us to think through this by bringing us back to the Garden of Eden, back to the original creation of Adam and Eve. God created man good and in his own image, that is in true righteousness and holiness. And he, it says that he did this so that mankind would know, love, and live with him in eternity. So the Catechism brings us right back to the original creation, right back to the Garden of Eden. God did not make a world and just populate it and fill it in Genesis 1 with death and suffering and sin. No, he created a, a world, Genesis 1.31, that was very good. There was no death. There was no sin. There was no disease. 
There was no weeping or crying or pain. Those things did not exist. So if you want to blame someone for the entrance of wickedness and sin and death and weeping, then we look to humanity. But maybe you want to press deeper and you're thinking, well, God is sovereign, right? Surely he decreed whatsoever comes to pass. You might be thinking, surely he providentially at least permitted Adam and Eve to eat that forbidden fruit. Well, it is true that God is completely sovereign, that he has decreed whatsoever comes to pass. Zacharias Jersinus, the author of our catechism, said that God permitted sin, that by this occasion God might display his goodness, mercy, and grace in saving through Christ all them that believe and manifest his justice and power in punishing the wicked and reprobate for their sins. So who is to be blamed? Who is charged with sin? Is it the ultimate cause or the proximate cause? The first agent or the second agent? Well, there is a great mystery here. There is a great mystery that we must hold in tension. There is a mystery that the Bible doesn't answer fully to us. But we need to think biblically. We need to think scripturally. Too often we want to get in our airplanes and we want our minds to go up into the clouds and to, and to ask weird, abstract thoughts, especially when it comes to sovereignty of God. We hear about the sovereignty and God uh, um, uh, predestined and God did all of these things. And then uh, we get into our, our mental airplanes and we fly up into the, into the clouds and we say, well, why should I pray? Why should I evangelize? Instead, we should be Bible people. We should be text people. We should be people of the book. And the book says that God has indeed ordained all that comes to pass. And God has indeed said that he is not the author of sin, that he cannot be charged with sin, and that sinners are to blame for their sin and not God. How can we reconcile all of these things perfectly? We have no idea. But we say what the Bible says and we go no further. Who is to blame for the fall? It is Adam and Eve. They actively rebelled. They actively sinned. They willed it. Even as we confess that there's nothing outside of God's sovereignty. This leads me to my second point, our fall. If God is not to be blamed for our corrupt nature, the catechism is asking then, well, who is the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise? So in the Garden of Eden, God entered into what some people call the covenant of works with Adam. If Adam obeyed God, then Adam and all of his posterity would have advanced into consummation, would have advanced beyond probation, beyond the threat of death, and they would have entered eternal glory in a heightened communion bond with the triune God. But if Adam disobeys, then all of his posterity and he himself would be guilty 
would be corrupted, would be spiritually dead, and would be unable by themselves to go back to God and be reconciled. Adam was, you could say, our representative. He was our covenant head. He represented us. If he obeys, we obey. If he sins, we sin. Now, this is a difficult, uh, difficult thing for some people. Well, why was he my representative? I, I sat down with somebody who was into uh, Wicca one time. And he said, answer this, Christian. Um, why don't I get a shot? Why, why am I born with someone else's guilt, someone else's corruption, someone else's sin? Why is Adam a representative for me if Christianity were true? He had a problem with somebody representing him. He had a problem with original sin, being born with Adam's guilt and corruption. J. Gresham Machen, the author of the, classical, the classic book, Christianity and Liberalism, said it well, I think. He said, he's answering this objection. You know, how can Adam be, be my representative? How can I be responsible for the sin of Adam? He says, well... I should just like to point out to you that if it is impossible in the nature of things for one person to bear the guilt of another person's sins, then we have none of the slightest hope of being saved. And the gospel is all a delusion and a snare. At the heart of the gospel is the teaching of the Bible to the effect that Jesus Christ, quite without sin himself, bore the guilt of our sin on the cross. If that be true, then we cannot pronounce it impossible that one person should bear the guilt of another person's sin. So if we don't want Adam to represent us, and if we say, well, that's not appropriate for Adam to represent us, well, then how appropriate is it for Christ, the second Adam, to represent us? But no, the first Adam represented us, and so too the second. And praise God that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, represents us. And that in him, our sins are covered, paid for, and gone. The fall of Adam and Eve poisoned our nature, the Catechism says. After the fall, we retained what people call the broad image of God. We did not completely lose the image of God after the fall of mankind. We re remained the broad image of God. The broad image of God are things like our body, our soul, our faculties, meaning that we have cognition, we have emotions, we have behaviors, we are relational people. This is part of the broad image of God. And we retain those things even after the fall of mankind. But we lost the narrow image of God that our catechism highlights. The narrow image of God is true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. That is lost in the fall and only regained when the Holy Spirit regenerates you and begins that process of sanctification all throughout life. The narrow image of God is being redeemed in us as the Spirit works in us. So like a broken, like a broken mirror, a broken piece of glass, the image of God is distorted and fallen humanity. We are born guilty and corrupt. We are sinners and we sin. Paul said in Romans 5, 
Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. I think when Paul in Romans 5 says death spread to all men because all sinned, I think there he's talking about all sinned in Adam. In Adam all sinned. We are guilty. Adam's sin is imputed, you could say, to all of mankind. But the bad news gets even worse. My final point, our inability. So question eight asks, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Yes, it answers, unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Now this point in the catechism is combating an ancient heresy of the church uh, known as Pelagianism. There was a man named Pelagius, and the story goes that he was walking down the street one day, and he heard somebody reading uh, a book, a writing that St. Augustine wrote. And in this book, St. Augustine was praying. He was writing down a prayer that he said to God. And in this prayer, St. Augustine said, Will what you command, command what you will. Praying to God, will whatever you command, command whatever you will. Um, or vice versa. And so Pelagius heard this, command what you will, will what you command. And he thought that's too high of sovereignty of God. That's too much control. That's going to lead people to apathy and lawlessness. And so Augustine and Pelagius would enter a fierce debate. Pelagius argued that Adam's sin did not corrupt us. Pelagius said Adam's sin only gave us a bad example. But it didn't do anything to corrupt us. Didn't shatter our wills, didn't lose the narrow image or anything like that. All it did was give us a bad example, and like children follow bad examples of their parents, we tend to follow bad examples of Adam and Eve. And that was as far as he wanted to push the implications of the fall. He argued that our wills are still free from corruption, and that we can choose good, and we can go to God in our own innate power. Anybody fallen does not need grace, does not need the Spirit. You can just go to God and be reconciled. He said that we are not predisposed towards sin, but we have a type of freedom just like Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden before the fall. Well, Pelagius was condemned at the Synod of Carthage in 418 A.D., and a hundred years later when somebody tried to resurrect Pelagianism, they called it semi-Pelagianism. That too was condemned at the Council of Orange. And when Pelagianism reared its head again in the 17th century, it was condemned yet again at the Synod of Dort. Now the Catechism speaks about doing good. Can we do good? Well, we have to ask ourselves, because we call a lot of things good. You know, that food was good. This was good. That was good. We, we use good in such a way. But the Catechism's asking, can we do good? Well, what is a good work? According to the Bible, according to the confession and catechism, a good work is a work done from a heart of faith 
according to the Bible, to the glory of God. So a good work from a heart of faith, according to Scripture, for the glory of God. If you don't have that, you don't have a good work in a vertical sense of the word. This means that only the regenerate, only those born again, can do actual good works, even though they will be imperfect and mixed with sin. Romans 14, 23, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Hebrews eleven six. without faith it is impossible to please God. But we also need to be clear that the unregenerate, the unbeliever, is not as evil as he could be. Uh, that's a point that R.C. Sproul used to make when he would talk about total depravity. And he would say, total depravity is not utter depravity. Sinners are not maxed out with evil because of God's common grace. The common grace of God gives common blessing to both believer and unbeliever alike. And God's common grace holds back the reins of sin and keeps sin from maxing out. So we see many good things that come from both believers and unbelievers. We see unbelievers doing many, many kinds of acts of kindness and acts of mercy. And we praise God for this, that, that God's common grace allows for kindness, mercy to be shown from believer and unbeliever alike. But in principle, in principle, this catechism is speaking about, um, about our inability and our inability to save ourselves. We, we cannot choose God. We cannot come to God on our own. We cannot do the ultimate good work of of, of, of just coming to God and giving it all to God and trusting and resting. We, we cannot do that kind of good. We cannot save ourselves. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. We are spiritually dead and spiritually dead people remain spiritually dead until the Holy Spirit awakens them and calls them to Christ. We are utterly dependent upon God for our salvation because we are wholly foregone. Sometimes when we look at the fall, Genesis 3, and we look at humanity, fallen humanity, sometimes we have a kind of um, a very minimal view about what the fall did to us. And we don't really see how wildly lost we were because of the fall. And when we don't see that, sometimes we miss the greatness of Christ in overcoming and undoing the effects of the fall. Lord's Day 3 is absolutely brutal. It's absolutely brutal. The covenant of works is broken. We lost the narrow image of God. We fell from our original state. We are guilty of Adam's sin. We are totally depraved. Our whole being is poisoned by sin. We are attracted to evil and attracted to darkness. We are helpless and unable to come to Christ. We are spiritually dead and physically dying. Lord's Day 3 is, uh, paints this despairing picture. But it paints this picture so that we will see our need. And that when we come into the second section of the catechism, that Christ will appear so much more beautiful 
knowing how far down we were, how far down we fell, how helpless we are. It paints that picture because in order to really grasp the good news, we first must grasp the bad news. When we understand Lord's Day 3, that we cannot come to God, we cannot, we cannot come to God and say, well, God, I'm just a good person. I'm going to heaven because I'm good. We won't say that after Lord's Day 3. Instead, we'll say with Psalm 51, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Amen.